That'll be page 62. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36 through the end of the chapter. Luke 7, verse 36. Jesus is anointed by a woman of the city. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You do not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You do not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Then Lord's Day 51, just one question, 126. Let's read the answer together. Lord's Day 51. What does the fifth request mean? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors means... Because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us, poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do, or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us, just as we are fully determined, as evidence of your grace in us, to forgive our neighbors." Last time we considered Lord's Day 50, I spoke of encountering in in various books that a couple of thinkers were troubled, uh, Christian theologians who are no longer with us, who are in in glory now. They were troubled that the, the request that has to do with your material needs, give us this day our daily bread, that that comes before the, uh, the spiritual petitions in the Lord's Prayer. So you better believe that when I, when I read what they had to say about this, they made sure to mention 
that there are multiple petitions that have to do with our spiritual needs and uh, that there is a lesson to take there. And I think that's true. Uh, You all know that I love and read the Puritans quite a bit and they can often uh, be too introspective, almost get get too much of of a negative view of the material world that God has created because they they tend to, tended to see the curse of sin and what the Bible calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to be aware of that. One of the reasons I think that the Puritans are such a huge help in this age is because often what's needed is almost an overcorrection. So in our world, what I think we have is a, is a starving of spirituality. There's, there is such a dearth of spirituality in our world. We don't think about the soul. We, we don't think about caring for the soul. We don't think about what we need to do uh, in order to make sure that, that we're doing the right things. Uh, we live in a, in a society, and a culture that's obsessed with the body, and we will do anything to, uh, to achieve what, what we want or what we think we ought to do in regards to the body. But spiritual needs are underemphasized. There is little knowledge that goes into them. And so that's why I think it's, it's so helpful. Thomas Watson sort of, he illustrates this when he shows to us the kind of danger that some Puritans could get in, but nevertheless, I think a good lesson to take from it. He says that the soul is a heavenly spark lighted by the breath of God. It is the more refined and spiritual part of man. It is of an angelic nature. It has a faint resemblance to God. He says the soul is immortal. It can act without the body. Though the body dissolve into dust, the soul lives. And so to that we might say, well, you need to remember, of course, that God has made us ultimately, as as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the longing of the soul when it's received into the presence of Christ upon death, the longing of the soul is to be further clothed with the glorified body that he will give to us. And so in, in eternity, what we will enjoy is a body that's, that's fit for eternity, that will not decay, that, uh, that will not grow old, that will not have any diseases. And we look forward to that. And that's a, a testament to how much God values the, the material. But nevertheless, it, it is an important lesson to remind ourselves that that which we do not see, the, the immaterial part of ourselves or of others, We don't behold the soul when you look at at someone. That is what we more easily forget. And it is true that to commune with God and to walk with God, to know him, it takes an awareness of these things and, and an effort and desire to grow spiritually. And so, reading on with with Watson, he made such a great point talking about this idea of daily bread, but then the daily bread for our soul. And the daily bread for our soul is the knowledge that your sins are forgiven. So he says this, daily bread may satisfy the appetite, but forgiveness of sins satisfies the conscience. He says, let us pray that God would not give us our portion in this life, that he would not put us off with daily bread, but that he would give forgiveness Do not be content with that which is common to the brute creatures, the dog or the rat, to have your hunger satisfied. But besides daily bread, get pardon of sin. And that's a great point, that as you look around the world, we we see people who are, are blinded to the spiritual ultimate realities, the true purpose of life. 
to serve God and to know Him, to commune with Him, to enjoy Him, to glorify Him. But what satisfies them is the, the, the basic needs. But if they have what they want in this life, if they can achieve the, the kinds of pleasures that they want to experience, or if, the, if their material wants are met, then they are happy. But that's ultimately, that's how animals live. Right? They live trying to go and satisfy their appetites. They have nothing deeper. We were made for something deeper. God stamped his image on us, and he made us for communion with him. And the one thing that's standing in the way of our communion with him is our sin. So the idea of forgiveness of sins is central. We find it in the Lord's Prayer, and we find in this simple petition a recognition that repentance is an ongoing practice in the life of a Christian. Martin Luther said it, said it best, the whole life of Christianity is to be taken up with repentance. And as we say time and time again, this does not mean that we wake up each morning and all of a sudden we've fallen outside of God's favor because we are sinful and we, we had uh, sinful blood running through our veins when we're sleeping. We know that God has accepted us in Christ and we are standing in grace. Nevertheless, our fellowship with God is renewed and refreshed through repentance. And when we sin, we displease our Heavenly Father. Our Father doesn't disown us when we sin, but it displeases Him. And that's why we take up our lives with repentance. So when we repent as Christians, there are uh, three things that I want to point out that happen, and the three C's of repentance. The first thing we do is we recognize, we're recognizing our condition. We're recognizing our condition as sinners. And secondly, we are confessing our sins. And thirdly, we are pursuing conversion. So condition, confession, and conversion. First, you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner. That is central to living the Christian life. That you are imperfect, that you fall short of the glory of God, uh, that you have so much that you need to work on and you need to figure out. 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10 goes further. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. To believe that you don't have a problem with sin, to believe that you're not a sinner, ultimately makes God a liar. It's his word against ours. So when we confess our sins or when we practice repentance, we're acknowledging the condition of our sinfulness. Secondly, when we confess our sins, we, we know that God is pleased to forgive us when we confess our sins to do so in sincerity and genuineness. The Bible, it's, it, I wouldn't say that the Bible presents it as a transaction, but God's lavish grace and mercy, in, in some sense, is activated upon his people when they confess and repent. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 1 John 1, verse 9, sandwiched in between those two verses we just read. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One theologian said that repentance doesn't satisfy God, but it pleases him. 
What satisfies God? The blood of Christ, the work of Christ. But nevertheless, God is pleased when his people confess their sins. So are you filling your life with repentance in that way? Are you, are you confessing your sins to God and making them known and making that a regular practice? The last part of repentance that I want to point out tonight is conversion. To have your lives filled with a purpose of new obedience. And when we're thinking about this relative to the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. To know the forgiveness of God is to understand that our lives are to be filled with a rich and a generous forgiving heart. We'll talk about this a little bit as we unpack Luke chapter 7. But our forgiveness is not what causes God's forgiveness. We, We read that story with Jesus and it almost seems like because this woman loves Jesus, that's why she gets forgiven. No, it's actually the reverse that's happening. But we'll say generally now that our forgiving is not a cause of God's forgiveness, but it is the means and the way through which God glorifies himself in us. How is God glorified in his people? When his people desire to glorify him by filling their lives with a similar, though lesser, forgiveness, like unto the forgiveness that he has shown. So, if it were the case that if you go out and you forgive a bunch of people, then God is then obligated to forgive you, then it wouldn't be something that we would ask. We would go to God and we would say, you, need, you must forgive me because I have forgiven those who have wronged me. But we're asking God to forgive us. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Secondly, we should understand that there is an enormous difference between divine forgiveness, God forgiving the creature, and human forgiveness. We can only forgive people in a, in a relative sense, not an absolute sense. We can only forgive the wrongs that are done to us, from, from one person to another. We can't forgive the sin that someone else commits against God. We can't forgive the sin that someone commits against someone else. That has to be something that happens between two people who need to make uh, their relationship right. So God has the authority to forgive and to forgive all sin and to cleanse all sin because sin is all an offense towards God, ultimately. God has the authority to forgive. We have a responsibility to forgive the wrongs done to us. So forgiveness of sin is found in Jesus and it results in love-filled forgiveness shown to others. That's a central idea for tonight. Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus and it results in love filled forgiveness shown to others. As we look at Luke chapter 7, we see this account of the anointing. And there is a main contrast that we see in this account, isn't there? We have the woman of the city who anoints Jesus, who covers his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and anoints his feet with perfume, expensive perfume. Contrasted with This man, this Pharisee, Simon, he is wealthy. He is able to host this dinner party. So these parties would have been held possibly in uh, in something like a a public building. If his house were big enough, it could have been at his house. It would have been this large open space. 
And as many of you probably have heard throughout the years, this or something like it, this passage or something like it, uh, Jesus, they recline at a table, so their feet are going outward, and they're almost leaning kind of on one arm. Seems very uncomfortable to us, but that is how they mostly ate uh, back in that time in history. So the social status of these two characters is where we begin to see the contrast. We don't know specifically what was going on with this woman, but she was known at least to this Pharisee and to those in his social group as a sinner. The, our translation does a little bit of over-translating here, saying that a woman who had lived a sinful life. We don't know specifically what that is. Most of us tend to associate this with some kind of life of sexual sin, but it doesn't tell us specifically here in Luke 7. But she shows up, and uh, the... the Original Greek should read something, or our translation should read something like this. Behold, a woman who is in the city, a sinner. So that's how she was known. And Simon is known as wealthy. So you have the socioeconomic uh, high status. You have religious high status as a Pharisee. This is someone well-connected. This was someone respected, highly regarded in that place, in that village, and in that city. So you have two people that kind of come from the opposite ends of the social ladder. Then another way that they are contrasted is with the extent of their actions. And what this account shows to us is there is a heart that, you can think about it this way, is hospitable to Jesus and the grace of Christ. A heart that is a, a proper home for the love of Jesus and for the grace of Jesus to, to fill us. And there is a heart that is hardened to Christ and his grace. And of course the call to all of us is to have a heart that's hospitable to the grace of Christ. What does the Pharisee do? We talk about the extent of their actions. The, the Simon, is he's doing the minimum, isn't he? In fact, He keeps Jesus at this distance where it's as if he's the one evaluating Jesus. I'll take him into my home. I'll host a party for him so that I can get a read on him. That's almost what's happening here. I want to know what this Jesus is all about. So I'm going to send a message that uh, I'm not on his team. I'm not going to give him the things that he needs to to wash. I'm not going to show him uh, respect that I would towards someone else that's a social equal, I'm going to sort of put him through initiation, through a tryout. I want to see what this Jesus is, is all about. So he rejects the basic duties of the host. This woman shows up, and what the extent of her action is everything that she does is, is almost extreme. Right? It makes everyone around her uncomfortable, Even as we read it, we're kind of struggling to understand what's going on. Why does she feel the need to do this? And and what's going on makes everyone around her, why is she here? Can we get rid of her? Simon is saying, well, if Jesus were anything, then he would know that this woman is the kind of woman you wouldn't want to be seen uh, seen with. But the picture here is a picture of worship. It's a picture of worship. And it's a picture, as I said, a heart that is 
a proper home for Jesus. She has affection towards Jesus. She has an abandonment of any idea of self-righteousness. She is not trusting in herself. She's completely looking outward, right? She's forgotten that she may look ridiculous to those around her. So she's looking completely outward. It's a heart filled with faith. It's a heart filled with affection and gratitude. It's a heart filled with generosity, where this willingness to give this, this perfume to Jesus, to anoint him with it, something that's very valuable. All of these things remind us that Jesus is worthy of our love. That he's more valuable than anything else that we have. And all other things uh, pale in comparison with him, to him. Simon then, as this unfolds, is filled with these thoughts. You know, he shouldn't touch this woman. You know, it could become unclean in some way. If Jesus were a prophet, he would know the problem that's going on here. And so Jesus confronts Simon with with a parable, a parable. The parable is very simple. There are two people that have a debt. One is 50 denarii, call it $50,000, and one is 500 denarii, call it $500,000. So it's 10 to 1, a 10 to 1 ratio. And Jesus says, both of these debts are completely wiped out. Now, Who do you suppose will love uh, the one who had forgiven them more? Simon answers rightly. Well, of course, it would be the one who had the the tenfold debt removed. They're going to be filled with much more gratitude. Their their heart is going to be much more thankful. They're going to see the the trap that they were in, that they could never have gotten out of this debt. And now all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, it's gone and it's forgiven. Jesus is making the point, and this account makes the point. As we may read it and say, well, is, is Jesus saying that it's impossible for this Simon the Pharisee to kind of know the lavish forgiveness and the mercy of God? Because we read it and we say, okay, well, the one with the, the huge debt, that's like the woman. And the one with the little debt, that's like Simon the Pharisee. So so what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that this kind of affectionate heart, this faith-filled heart, this love-filled heart towards Jesus, or seeing the worth of Jesus, seeing the value of Jesus, is only available to someone like this woman? We may ask ourselves the same question. You know, if... If we live our lives as Christians and we were born into the church, we were blessed to be born into a, into a Christian family, we were taught Christian virtue, the right way to do things, and of course we stumble and we mess up, uh, but many of us would look back on our lives and we would say, I'm thankful that the Lord has preserved me from a lot of the, the kinds of sin that we see in this world. Sure, I know that I, I've been, my life has been filled with, with sin and sinning and mistakes, But largely, the Lord has allowed me to live a pretty stable, uh, upstanding, and Christian life. So, does Luke 7, is it teaching us that that kind of lavish love, that gratitude, that thankfulness to Jesus, seeing the value of Jesus, that it's impossible for us? Well, no, no. The lesson is about what we see when we're turned inward. Simon has a high view of himself, 
And the only people that can have a high view of themselves are people that have a low view of God. If you do not think much of God's holiness, and of course, we're getting that lesson as we're reading this account because God the Son is in the presence of Simon, right? the, the, the fully glorious and exalted one, Jesus Christ, is right there, and Simon fails to see it. So it, he has a low view of the holiness of God, and anytime we have a low view of the holiness of God, we're going to run into the problem of having an inflated view of ourselves. It's true that no matter what kind of life we live, even if we are blessed to live fairly stable, Christian-looking lives, and that can be a great blessing, stability, family, and the home, and uh, to, to not look back on your life and see these massive amounts of time where you're running from God or living in, in, uh, in overt sin, that can be a great blessing. But even those kinds of lives when they are compared to the holiness of God, when they are compared to the the incomprehensible purity of the infinitely divine one, the one who is so beyond all that we could imagine. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And there was a righteous man at that point amongst God's people. It probably, probably would have been Isaiah. And he falls down on his face when he is brought into the glory and the majesty of God. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst people of unclean lips. It's interesting that the Pharisees love the law. As you read the Gospels, they they think that the law is their ally. They will often use it in manipulative ways. We saw that at the end of Judges, using the commandments of God and their vows in manipulative ways. But this is not a story of the woman loves the gospel and the Pharisee loves the law. You see, the Pharisee misunderstands the law. The woman understands both the law and the gospel because she is seeing the truth about her sinfulness. God has given us his law, his commandments, at least in one sense, so that we would know the, the depth of our sin, the seriousness of our sin, how ugly it is, and it should be to ourselves and to God. To know your sin, what does it make you do? What did Adam do in the garden when he realized he had sinned? He ran from God and he hid. What does sin make us want to do? It makes us want to run from God and hide. And that feeling can sometimes, we can sometimes sort of excuse it away and it goes away with time. But God wants us to deal with our sin in light of who he is, to confess our sin and to realize and know the kind of forgiveness that uh, he offers to his people and to his children. John Owen was reflecting upon this, the holiness of God and the forgiveness of God. He said this, to have all the clouds and darkness that are raised by sin between us and the throne of God dispelled, to have the fire and storms and tempests that are kindled and stirred up about him by the law removed, to have his glorious face unveiled and his holy heart laid open, and a view given of those infinite treasures and stores of goodness, mercy, love, and kindness which have been with God from all eternity, to have a discovery of these eternal springs of forbearance and forgiveness is that which none but Christ can accomplish and bring about. You see, the woman of the city comes into this, into this party and she sees in Christ... This is the one who can wash away my sin.
I have found here the only one who is able to deal with my sin the way that I need. It's the mercy that we see in Psalm 103. God has shown forgiveness to his children and to those who fear him. He has separated our sins as far as east is from the west. So as you look at this account, there are two characters. There's Simon, who's a horrible host. There's the woman, who's a weeping worshiper. And the question is brought to all of us. We're confronted with this question. Which one are you? What are you more like? Do you have this heart that's filled with affection for Jesus to look upon him and say, here is the only one in whom I will find forgiveness. Here is the only one who will allow me to to survive in light of the holiness of God. I will stand before God one day. And what what will I show to God when I stand before him? The infinitely majestic one. The only thing that we will be able to cling to ultimately. We will have to answer for our lives and the things that we have done. But ultimately the only thing that we will be able to cling to is the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings us to the fore when he's talking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing me with, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. The attitude of this Pharisee makes his heart inhospitable to the grace of Christ because he has not seen the fullness of his sin. This woman who knows something of the extent of her sin. She probably, we will never know the full extent of our sin. But she knows something of it. And her heart, her life is filled with worship. So don't be a horrible host to the grace of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, self-confidence pollutes and dishonors the Savior's work. Do you want to dishonor the work of Christ? Be filled with self-righteousness and self-confidence, saying, ultimately, I'm, really, I'm better than everyone around me, and God should at least be pleased with that. We should always be looking inward and say, I have so much I need to work on. Yes, other people have problems, and we know that. But what are we called to focus on? The sin that we must deal with within ourselves by the grace of God and by his power. Now to the end of this account, where Jesus says, about this woman. I tell you, her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. It seems like Jesus says it is the way in which she loves that brings about her forgiveness. Jesus says, okay, she's loving me a lot, so now I'm going to forgive her. But as we consider this passage, and, and particularly what Jesus says afterwards, he's making the exact opposite point. Jesus is looking at this woman and he is saying, I'm telling you that the fire of love towards me is in her heart because of the smoke that we're seeing. Right? There, there is a fire because there is smoke. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. 
Similarly, Jesus says that uh, this woman knows that in Jesus she receives forgiveness because look at how much she loves him. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what we are saying is keep lavishing me with your forgiveness. Keep pouring your forgiveness out into my life and keep empowering me to live more and more for you to show forth your forgiveness. Let my life be filled with that smoke that this woman's life was filled with, this love and affection towards Jesus because the fire of what God has done is there. And in the very next sentence, Jesus gives the perfect explanation. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus doesn't say, he who loves little will be forgiven little. He who has been forgiven little loves little. Now to return to what we just unpacked. What Simon ought to do is not go home discouraged and say, well, since... Since I don't have a lot to be forgiven of, I guess I'm I'm not able to love. No, Jesus is saying, look into your heart. Search your heart. Allow the word of God, the law of God, to undo you and to make you see your need for grace. There's something here of of a worship liturgy that this is what we do each and every Sunday. We come to God. We're given the assurance of pardon. That in Christ we are forgiven. And then we're told to, to go forth. Go, go out into the world. Love God. Love your neighbor. Serve the others around, uh, who are around you. Forgive much, for you have been forgiven much. See, the Christian life, the central issue of the Christian life is allowing the gospel to become more and more real to us. To realize more and more the extent to which we are forgiven. And to realize how glorious God is in his grace. The gospel is very simple, but it's very difficult to believe in some ways. Because uh, we we say, is it really true that, that God will just generously forgive my sin and welcome me into fellowship with him? And that Christ truly pays the price for all of my sin? The gospel is simple, but it can be difficult for us to believe. And that's why we need to hear it again and again and again, that God saves sinners. The beginning of the story, you'd never think that the one you want to be associated with would be this woman, but this woman is a picture of faith. She's a picture of love towards God, towards Christ. She's a picture of seeing the value of Christ. She, She gives us repentance. And finally, what does she receive? She receives the blessing and the favor of Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Live in peace. Live in freedom. A foundational issue here is humility, to be filled with a humble heart that knows and understands that you are a sinner, that knows and understands that Christ is the, to walk into that room and to have your eyes look upon him and say, he is the one that I need. He is the one that I have always needed. And then to be filled, to let your life be filled uh, with love and gratitude and worship towards him. To go in peace, to be sent out in peace, to be assured of forgiveness. That is the daily bread for the soul. And our lives ought to be taken up with repentance in that way. And we ought to seek that each and every day to be refreshed in the truth of the gospel. 
that in Christ we are forgiven. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we find lavish mercy and grace in Christ. We pray that you would forgive us as we forgive our debtors and that we would seek to be like this woman, humble, affectionate, grateful, not worried about the the way the world may see us, but just wanting to bestow upon you what little honor we can give. She was was low on the, the social ladder, but she wanted to glorify you. So may we be filled with that kind of a heart. We thank you and we praise you for, for this account, and we thank you and we praise you for your word, for another day spent in, in this place, unpacking this word. And we pray that you would, would grow us through it, sanctify us in it, and may we go forth this week uh, living for you and for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. We'll end by singing number 450.